Welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garma. And I'm Drew Evans. Our guest today is a good one. Michael Gelfin has been involved with the American Mock Trial Association for a long time. He started as a competitor in 1997. He's coached at a number of different locations, including NYU and now Iona College. And this upcoming year, you know him as the chair of the Civil Case Committee and one of the primary authors of this year's case. We are thrilled to have him on the podcast just two days after the case surprise dropped to get into as many details as we possibly can. So, Mike Gelfin, thanks so much for joining the Mock Review. Thanks for having me, guys. It's awesome to be here. So let's start the way that we like to start with all of our guests, which is your origin story. Go back to, to 97 or even before, if that if it was before, and how you first got involved in mock trial and then just sort of take us through that history. Well, this is going to be a reminder to all the listeners of this podcast of just how young they are, because my origin <laughs> story really starts probably in the summer of 93. I think it's the summer of 93. And it starts at Haverford College, of all places. And what happened at Haverford College in the summer of 93 was that at that point in my life, I was in, it was like the summer after eighth grade. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Haverford College had what I can best remember as a debate camp. And I really, really enjoyed that experience. And I came out of it. I want to do debate. Debate sounds awesome. Well, I got to Jericho High School in September of 93. They didn't have a debate team. What was the closest thing they had? I think the two of you can probably guess. (laughs) They had a mock trial team. My freshman year, there were a lot of seniors on the team. There was an English teacher at the high school who was a longtime coach. So they pretty much knew what they were doing my freshman year when I was just a witness and all the seniors were attorneys and things like that. Basically, the rest of my mock trial career was with virtually no coaching because that teacher left my sophomore year, all the seniors graduated. So I kind of took over the team almost as a sophomore without a faculty member who knew what they were doing. And so we were kind of mediocre at best for those high school years. I went to Buffalo. I had the exact opposite problem at Buffalo than I had in high school. Buffalo didn't have a mock trial team. They had a debate team. And so I joined the debate team. But the people on the debate team really didn't understand how to run a debate team and what the rules were and things like that. So we went to our first debate competition in October of 97. And if you can imagine the worst round that anybody's ever had in a mock trial round, we were about 10 times worse than that. We absolutely, we had no idea what we were doing. By the second round of competition, we wanted to forfeit and go home. And the only reason we didn't go home before the second round was because the judge, who was a naval officer, really intimidated us. He's like, you guys should compete. But needless to say, we went home after that second round, didn't even compete that Sunday. I was on the phone with AMTA that Monday. And I said, I want to start a mock trial team. I started the team at Buffalo as a freshman. You can imagine how things went as a freshman starting a team with no coaching we were kind of bad for four years. We had the last two years, we kind of almost made the silver tournament, which is the current equivalent of orcs. But I, I got a couple of attorney awards, but I'm sure I, I'm probably thankful that there is no video footage of those rounds. <laughs> so 
when I graduated college, that was the first of my three retirements from AMTA forever, never come back. And I got to law school. I tried out for the law school mock trial team. I didn't make the team. And I thought that was the end of the story. I, I was like kind of a mock trial nerd about it. I was like, oh, if you guys need anybody, any help, yada, 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 I'd love to do whatever I can. They, they didn't care. I, I, I didn't make the team. I was done. So once again, done with mock trial, headed to law school. That's that. I see this weird flyer. NYU, NYU law school mock trial team. And it, and it had a name, Jonathan Fogel, and a number. And I said, this makes no sense. I just tried out for the law school mock trial team. I didn't make the team. What's going on here? It turns out that little flyer is the reason I'm still with the American Mock Trial Association. Because I called this person, Jonathan Fogel, and it turned out he's starting a rogue New York University Law School mock trial team. As you can imagine, that went nowhere. And that was a big flop. But he said to me, you know what? Coaching the undergraduates. You want to help out with that? And that's where the story really, really, really got started. I coached there for three years. When I graduated from law school, I stepped away to start my job. But while I was away for four years, I judged at a lot of tournaments in the Northeast, the downtown, Columbia, the regionals that was at St. John's at one point. And I made a lot of friends in the activity through that. And I knew Justin Bernstein because Justin's first year at NYU was my last year. So we, I, we kind of, I was the Doug Collins to his Phil Jackson to make a reference that perhaps listeners of this podcast are too young to get. Like he, he turned that program into an elite program and we were kind of the, uh, the okay uh, performers before that. But that, so that's how I knew Justin. I met Toby through judging his teams at those Northeast tournaments. I met Mia through judging at Columbia and MY, and at the downtown. And so what happened was I would judge these top teams and they'd actually be really, really receptive to like what I would say to them. And suddenly it became, well, if these top teams think I have something somewhat useful to say, maybe, maybe I'm not done with this activity. Maybe there's something more here. And I'd known Adam Detsky for many years. He had actually judged me when he was a law student at Syracuse and I was still in college and he gave me sixes and sevens, that jerk. <laughs> but that's how I first met him and we kind of kept in contact. I ran into him when I went to watch my friends at a silver tournament and, and, and I got his email address and we started knocking ideas off each other. He was on perjuries. He saw me on perjuries. And so for years – he would tell me what he was doing at I. He started the Iona program in 2002. And he would say, "These are this is my theory. These are my ideas. What do you think of this? And I would tell him what I thought. We kind of bounced ideas off each other until the fall of 2008, where I decided I want to get back into the game. And I felt the best way to do that was to be Adam's assistant coach. I was still worried about my job. So I said, you know what? Email me scripts. I might, I'll, I'll edit them over email. Maybe I'll come to practice occasionally. Nothing big, no big commitments, just that type of thing. Now I'm running the program. So, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's kind of the short version of the origin story. And, you know, I, I have to say that when I actually competed, I didn't really learn most of what I know about the activity. In fact, really the first coaching go-round at NYU, like if you were to compare what I knew back then to all the stuff I know now, 
I learned most of what I learned, judging the top teams, seeing what they did, and then really learning at Adam's knee at Iona for five years. So it's, that's probably a somewhat different story than a lot of people tell because most people who are successful on the board and they, and are successful coaches now really had a much more successful run competing than I did. And I'm sure much more successful, at least initial coaching run. So there's my origin story for you. <laughs> hey, and it's a, it's a good one. You got, you got a lot of twists and turns in there. I like it. Um, so I, I want to get to, to now because obviously we've sort of sold this as, you know, we're talking to the author of the case and we, you know, we've got lots of case questions for you. But the first question to just sort of get into this topic is one that I can't help but asking, which is that sort of a two-parter, which is why did you guys decide to fake everyone out and release the case early and pretend that you weren't and then drop it? And how much fun did you have uh, as a committee and as those who are in the know planning that and watch it unfold? If there was any doubt that Will Warahay is a genius, it needs <laughs> to be dispelled in the committee that he gave me and, and the people he appointed and the people he retained. I have a unique sense of humor. The best human beings one can work with are those who work hard and those who share the same sense of humor that you do. The committee members on this year's committee share the same sense of humor that I do. We love to have fun. We don't take this too serious. We work our butts off, but we don't take it too seriously. And we love the idea of having fun with people in, a, in what I believe, at least, is a good-natured way. And I'm also a big wrestling fan. And I've been a wrestling fan for over 30 years. And one of the biggest things about wrestling is the concept of the swerve. They lead you down one path. You think a match is going to have one finish or a storyline is going to go in one direction and they throw you and they throw a curveball at you. Somebody, a good guy for a long time turns bad, a bad guy for a long time turns good. So I love, I love any chance to integrate those types of concepts into mock trial. That being said, none of these teasers were my idea. <laughs> I, I just basically okayed them and added a couple of tweaks here and there, but they, they were, they were the combination of other people on the committee Will, Missy, Diane, Michael Ack, and I think one or two other people had a hand in them. But we all kind of shared the same sense of humor. And I, I thought it was a really funny thing to have the first teaser just be a completely redacted page. I mean, it's just as a one-day joke. It's not – my thinking of it is we were releasing teasers, I think, earlier than most times they've been released in the past. So why not have a little fun? and. We were going to also release the case early. We were going to give you guys a good main event. So why not have some twists and turns and fun along the way? And I had so much fun with the whole teaser process. I was I was enjoying the heck out of it and getting kind of the frustrated, the, the one day frustrated, because I would never joke with people in that manner for more than like a day or two. So it was kind of funny just to see the, the way reactions change from the first teaser to, oh, when the order of protection dropped, I knew that was going to be fun. And the sympathy card, my favorite, the, 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 the exhibit that I first, when it was first pitched, I was like, how is this even relevant? Now it's my favorite document in the whole case. Oh, I was, I was, I was super excited when all that stuff dropped and the AMA swerve was not even my idea, but it was just like, that's just perfect. <laughs> as someone that had to bear through that as a competitor, I can say that it was 
slightly more frustrating than you make it out to be, but all in good fun. And the case being released early was definitely a awesome bonus. Uh, so one thing I kind of wanted to take us back to is where all of the case kind of got started for you guys. Can you kind of take us through the background of what was the initial idea? How did that process kind of go to just hash out the, we want this to be about a chimpanzee mauling somebody? Absolutely. I think there's kind of a misconception when it comes to the drafting process of a case. I think a lot of people think that this is something done over the course of a year or perhaps even more than that. At least since I've been involved, and that goes back to 2013 as a full committee member, and I proofread cases starting in 2010. It's really a process that takes a couple of months. And here, we kind of had an even more abbreviated than normal process because our committee had a major overhaul when Will became president, not for any bad reason. It's that Justin and Toby, who were two of the main workhorses for many years, both got awesome new jobs. And because they got awesome new jobs and because Justin especially was writing cases for other competitions, they decided to take a step back and they and so Will replaced them with new people and he added a couple of other new people. So what started as a committee of five when I first joined the committee in 2013 was now a committee of nine people. And that committee of nine people wasn't even finalized until March. And what's going on in March? We have Oryx and we have the NCT. So I got the call to be the case committee chair when I was repping in Wilmington. So that's when I first heard that that was happening. So that's when I first heard who was going to be on the committee. And I didn't even email those people until orcs were over. And we didn't – we picked a case topic before the NCT, obviously, because we had to have the, the, the teaser for the NCT. That was, some, that was the first task that had to be done. I'm not completely certain exactly how the process used to be. People used to write whole cases and submit them and then get reworked by the committee. That's not what happens now. There might We looked at a number of proposals. Most of them were internal from the committee, um, maybe one or two from outside. I, I don't specifically recall. Um, I'm not going to get into the specifics of other stuff we considered because especially one of those topics might very well be used in the future. We had a very close discussion when it came to choosing this particular topic as as opposed to another one. So I'm not going to really get into any of the alternatives that were proposed simply because they're great ideas that we may want to use again, and I don't want to ruin that. This was first proposed generally as a general concept of an animal attack in an entertainment setting. It kind of got narrowed to we really don't want to do an animal attack on an actual taped show because one of our one of the pet peeves that I and other people had with, do you guys remember the Jewel Walton case? I've, I've read it. I, obviously, we didn't do it, but, I, but I've read it. Okay. The Drew Walton case was a defamation case that was based on a news report that was actually broadcast to the entire world. And so everybody who watched around the Drew Walton case had the same thought. Where's the broadcast? <laughs> you know, we, you, this whole thing is on a video and we're not seeing the video. And so – one of the things we really wanted to do right off the bat was come up with a reason. If we're going to do something in the entertainment industry, it has to be, we have to have a reason why there's no video. So that's why it became a closed rehearsal. 
then the next question became what was the animal going to be and we had a number of different thoughts in that regard and we just decided I mean, a couple of people did some good research on chimpanzees and the committee decided as a whole that a chimpanzee was the best way to go and we decided that it being in the entertainment industry it would be a chance for fun witnesses we obviously somebody could do a lot playing a game show host uh, additional guest members band so it, it kind of lent itself to a fact pattern with a lot of fun witness ideas and throw experts on top of that and i think you have the makings of a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good case well one thing that uh, is kind of cool about this case was that it was written by nine different people you guys really had a a, a large team working on it and uh, I'm kind of curious how you guys divided up the workload there. I understand not getting into specifics of who wrote what, but how did that kind of work? And especially when you have a lot of different minds coming together to write one case, it's important to have a uh, continuity throughout it and make sure that people are on the same page. So I'm just curious, uh, anything that you can speak to in regards to the divvying up of work? Anybody who knows me knows that I'm the most anxious person on the face of the earth. And when this was, this whole situation was presented to me in March, that was my big fear, that we were going to have nine people, almost half of them were entirely new to the committee. Who knows? And I'm not the type of person that does charts and spreadsheets and, 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 and things like that. That's never been my style of doing work or leadership or things like that. So I was actually very concerned about that. So what I the message I try to really send from the very beginning is I want this to be a situation where everybody on this committee can point to a significant part of this case and say I was responsible for that. And I think we really, really did a good job of divvying up the affidavits and reports so that that goal was, at least for the most part, accomplished. Almost everything at least the first draft of it. And the drafts weren't like ridiculously revised, but at least the first draft of it, of almost everything in the case was written by somebody different. And the committee members independently of me did a great job of really coming together, reading the stuff other people drafted, making sure their affidavit report or deposition was consistent with it, and really keeping on point with the whole with the same whole general story. Because it never it never got to the point where at least not me. I, I, I know we had some documents that kind of summarized certain things, but it was never a situation where it was like, this is the story and these are the 10 pages of facts that everybody has to follow. Like we had discussions, but people just generally did a great job on their own of making sure that their material was consistent with everybody else's. And so it, it kind of came together very, very organically in that regard. And in that respect, I'm just very lucky that, to have the people I did because as I'm sure both of you know, being in team settings, that's very often not the case. So along those lines, so you you know the, you have this process of trying to ensure continuity. Um, obviously, in a civil case, you're dealing with essentially a 50-50 uh, burden, but you, as you're writing, I'm sure you have to be considering case balance. So is this a situation, I'm guessing the answer to this question is probably no, given what you've described already, but are you keeping like, 
a tally of helpful versus hurtful facts for certain sides, um, especially with a case like this with with cross claims. You know, how did your committee and you specifically approach the idea of making sure that this case was written as balanced as possible? Okay, here's been my experience with case balance. Every criminal case, when I first read it, oh my God, this is so pro-prosecution. Every civil case, both when we're writing it and when I first read it, oh my God, this is so pro-plaintiff. With Riley Winter, I, when we wrote the clunker email, we thought the clunker email was, was Sawyer Shaw admitting liability. Like we thought this was the, the biggest smoking gun in the history of the world. And it became this big nothing burger for the most part. So the stuff that you write when the case process is ongoing, you're seeing it for the most part as more pro P, whether that P is prosecution or plaintiff, than it really is. So while making sure that the plaintiff had a case and that the plaintiff had good witnesses and the plaintiff had a fact, had good facts, what our focus really was throughout most of the process in a general sense, and I'm sure people can see this perhaps as a point of frustration in some of the witness affidavits, depositions, and reports, more pro-P, more incriminating stuff for D, more pro-P, more pro-P. That, that, was, that was the clarion call throughout most of the process. And I think that, that, because here's the thing, when you're on defense, even when you have a counterclaim, you're in the position where if nobody's wrong, you win. And so if you can poke holes and poke holes, you win. And that plus the fact that the defense goes second and the prosecution is kind of setting the bar and, and the judges are more influenced generally by the later things they hear, all of these things lead to a natural pro-D bias. And that's why you get your Park v. Duran intentional shooting uh, negligence per se deal, and you get even more extreme the Avery Bancroft uh, Chase Covington situation where there were literally two defendants and the defense had to prepare two different case theories. We did not want to go that route. So because we didn't want to go that route, we really had to make sure throughout the whole process, are we incriminating D enough? Are we incriminating D enough? Are we incriminating D enough? So that was, that was how we dealt with case balance. Was it successful? We'll find out in the next couple of months. And how successful it was, there'll be a memo that's released in, I guess, December um, that in the past at least has had data from the analytics committee that was collected from invitationals showing which witnesses were called, showing how many rounds P was winning, showing how many rounds D was winning. And that will be considered when we make the pre-regionals case changes in December, and especially when we make the pre-org case changes in late February and March. You know, it's funny that you said that you read most of the cases as being pro-prosecution, pro-plaintiff, because I, I don't know what it is, but I always read them the reverse. And I'll be honest, when I read this case, I read it as so pro-defense. And it's not a criticism to you, I think, that, you know, writing a case is, is tough in itself. But I thought it was, it was interesting to hear that you felt that most of the cases end up being pro-plaintiff. And I guess that the thing with to make it related to this case specifically, with the counterclaim, I think that the defense has a cool situation where they're basically being a plaintiff of their own separate case. But the reason why I saw this as being more defense-sided 
was because majority of the witnesses were witnessing to the events um what happened at Midland's television studio, which is going to be, in my opinion, more for the defense. It's going to be things about, oh, you know, was this person irresponsible? Did they not have this sign up? What not? Was there a cat there? Things like that are all really things for the defense. And the plaintiff, the only real ammunition they have is, oh, you didn't train the chimpanzee enough, which to me is only coming through on you know, they're expert and there isn't really any other plaintiff witnesses that you can call that are going to be able to really provide you with like specifically the training was not, was the the problem here. And to me that, that makes me feel like it's defense bias just because you're going to have so many more witnesses to talk about what the defense wants to talk about. But I guess to make this into a question to you, uh, how much of the rationale when there's a counterclaim is it in giving both the defense and the plaintiff enough ammunition to make both of their cases? Because they're completely different cases. Yeah, and I think we we tried we tried our best to do that. I think that you know there's a number of avenues the plaintiff can go. I'm not going to get into specifics of what I think plaintiff teams can do, but I think there is enough ammunition, and I think there are certainly things that the plaintiff is able to provide here beyond just the train. And the training is a major issue, and we expect teams to we expect most teams to call experts regardless of the facts anyway but i think there's i think there in my opinion there's stuff beyond that but we definitely tried to give both sides the ability to prove their case and to do our best to require the defense to affirmatively pursue the counterclaim they're given and not just sit back and poke holes in the plaintiff's allegations about training and other things so along the lines of being on this committee, and, and I want to give proper attribution, by the way, both the question I'm about to ask and the case balance question were inspired in part by posts on perjuries by the ghost of Chase Michael. So thank you for sending in some questions. We appreciate it. Uh, so obviously this case committee, like I think pretty much every case committee, uh, has several coaches on it. People like you um, or several of the other individuals who are active coaches in various programs across the country. Obviously, it kind of has to be that way, right? Like if we banned coaches from cases, there just wouldn't be any cases. So there's a sort of a necessity there. But my two-part question is, number one, what do you say, can you give us a little bit more detail on how much effort the committee puts into to make sure that everyone understands that this is a private process and that they cannot share any of this information with any of their team members? And then do you see any potential advantage as a coach um you know do you think coaches actually get any sort of advantage by being on the case committee in terms of having a maybe a deeper understanding of the the case knowledge you know or, or understanding maybe undercurrents in the case or or anything that having coaches on the case committee relates to how the case will eventually play out all I can say in response to part one, I don't police people in their private lives. I don't know, you know, I, I don't hack into people's email addresses, obviously. Um, I mean, I wish I had that ability. I do not. <laughs> I gave a very stern warning at the beginning of the process about confidentiality. And I was abundantly clear that everything we talk about stays within the committee. And that especially before the case is released, I mean, there's sanctions involved there when teams access the case early. And, and that's a very serious thing. And we don't want to put anybody 
in that position. Now, the reality is that it's not just the committee who deals with the case. There's the people we're working with with teasers had access to certain things. Proofreaders were given access to the case two weeks before the case was released to, for the purpose of proofreading it. And, and, that, and that's necessary because when you have tunnel vision with something that you've sat with for a couple of months, you're not going to – you have trouble – viewing it from the outside and seeing typos that maybe other people will see and seeing bigger world issues than other people will see. So I, I personally have no reason to, be, to have ever believed since I started working on this committee in 2013, I've never seen any evidence that anybody has leaked anything to students. That being said, to address the second part of this question, there is a ban on coaches for the NCT case committee. And the reason why there is there and there isn't here is that everybody gets the NCT case, I guess, uh, two to three weeks. I don't even know what it is now, with barely a month to prepare and everybody's rushing, rushing, rushing. So virtually any knowledge of anything about the case beforehand is a major, major competitive advantage in that particular setting. That is not the setting here. The setting here is that this case is released in August. Some teams don't even sign up until September or October. Some teams that do sign up don't even start their, 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 their school year until sometime inside. I think some of them even go into October. At that point, once all that process begins, by even October invitationals, everybody's been obsessing over every word in the case for two months. Is there really, I mean, by that time, They've absorbed just as much as I had, having written it two months before. And all I have is the stuff I wrote. That's all, the, all anybody on the committee has. We're, look, we're all looking at the same case. And there's a point where everybody is going to be in the same competitive position, given however much time. And I think that time elapses October invites, much less by the time we hit regionals in February. I just don't think there's any – like really the substantive portions of this case weren't in any major completed state until mid-July, close to the end of July. So at that – anybody who saw it at that point, okay, maybe they have a month's advantage. But that that gets wiped out so quickly with an activity like this with students and coaches who were so smart, who again are going to obsess over every word. And just anecdotally, I'm embarrassed to admit this, both years that I have been a full member of the case committee, my team has not advanced past regionals. So that little piece of anecdotal evidence is, I guess, further evidence. But I truly, honest to God, do not see a competitive advantage from knowing for, for the people who proofread the case or for those of us writing it. I, I just don't. Because by the time we get to regionals, everybody's on the same. Everybody's gotten the same level of obsession and work in this. One quick follow up on that, and I think all of that's that's right, and I think it all makes sense. But you, I mean, you said you mentioned in a previous you know answer that you all will get analytic information from the committee, and you'll use that to make case changes based on case data. And I know you're not looking at anything that's not you know you don't get you're not privy to data that isn't public, I don't think at least, but obviously the committee 
knows the logic behind the pre-regionals case changes in terms of, okay, you know, what do we need to fix and what are, why are we making these changes? Now, I think it's usually pretty obvious why certain changes are being made, but that obviously there's significantly less time and significantly less competition before the ones that count. Uh, so I guess I'm just curious if you think in that capacity, um, and I actually, I'm not, I'm being a little bit of a devil's advocate here. I don't really think there's much of an advantage, but you know, whether or not that scenario maybe could give someone on the committee a little bit of a leg up over someone who isn't involved in those discussions. My guess is no, because even in that situation, and it's a guess because I can't speak for everybody, but even in that situation, you have changes and, and true, there's no, there's usually only January invites at that, but you're still dealing with two months between when those changes, which are usually not totally case altering changes. We might make a witness stronger. We're not, we're not removing Unless something ridiculous happens, I, I don't think a witness has ever been removed or added in the pre-regionals case changes in December. So you're not talking about changes that are really going to destroy anybody's theory or make something ridiculously different in that time, at least to my recollection. It used to be with pre-org changes that sometimes that would happen. I think we added a witness in Park v. Duran, yeah, I think I think we did. So you're not really talking about a major lag time of advantage to the extent there even would be. So I, I, I've seen no evidence that even even pre-regional or pre-or case changes give the committee members any type of real advantage. Okay, so now we've obviously discussed a lot of the global stuff, and so we've got a series of things that are more specific to this year's case that we want to get into. Uh, and so moving into that, I think my first question uh, has to do with one of, I think, AMTA's favorite things to do, which is to drop little, um, you know, running storylines or nuggets or things like that in the case. There are quite a few of those in here. You have no idea. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is I, I think there's a lot more than Drew or I uh, perhaps have the um, experience, let's put it that way, to uh, be aware of. So do, do you have a favorite that you're willing to mention? I mean, I loved all, I loved Ashley, the, the person who added Ashley Thornhill as a witness did that of their own volition when they were given the assignment of writing a swing witness with virtually no guidance of what that swing witness would be. And that even ended up not being a swing witness. So we, so my rec my memory there isn't even fully uh, on board. Sorry about that, guys. But um, that person came up with that. I thought that was really cool to bring this throwback from way back. And there, the reference in the Grace deposition to explain away the the inconsistency of Grace being dead at the time of the Neptune case. I thought I thought that was really clever. My, I mean, I have a lot of stuff. I throw in family members. I throw in former students. I throw in other stuff that's of entertainment to me. My personal favorite thing is a line that I also threw into the Riley Winter case, that I threw into this case as well, as well, that has to do with a total inside joke to my team. That's one of my favorite stories ever of me putting my foot in my mouth and, and, and being made fun of it for the better part of two years. What In the 2016, there's a line in the Grace deposition about that, that's added seemingly randomly about Chris Villafana not being one of our top three writers, but being very reliable. And there's a similar line in the Sam Owens expert report. And I didn't write the Grace deposition. I just added that one. 
just to be clear about that. Um, there's a similar line in the Sam Owens report from several years ago that old people get told they're reliable, young people get told you're among our top three. So here's the story behind that. 2016 regional, we were dealing with Bancroft versus Covington. Two days before the regional tournament, my defense opener has a medical issue and is unable to compete. And the defense opener in Bancroft v. Covington had quite a bit of responsibility. So in the two days before we left for regionals, several people on the team had to basically pull two all-nighters and, 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 and learn all that stuff and double up, where we weren't planning on doing so. And I was dejected by that whole turn of events. I legitimately, I thought we were finished. I thought we were screwed. And I, I just, I was cursing more than I normally curse in my, and I curse a lot, but I was cursing more than normal the weekend of that trip. And so we ended up going five and three and getting an open bid. And we actually should have, I mean, could have even gotten a six or seven, that round four, but whatever. <laughs> not, not the round against you, Ben, round four. But the, um, but I was so happy, and in my congratulatory remarks to the team, I said, you guys really came together. You lost one of your top three players, and you still pulled through. And so the response he's on our top – so uh, am I in the top three? Oh, I'm, who's in the top three, Mike? Name the top – so I, I got continuous grief from this. And one student in particular was like, I know I'm not in the top three, but I'm reliable. <laughs> so like they kept saying over and over again to the point where that particular student changed his group me handle to not top three. <laughs> so that became, I was like, well, I have to throw in a reference to that in Riley Winter. And I decided to do it again this time around as well. I will leave it to the imagination whether the people for whom Chris Villafana is named uh, – are part of that story. <laughs> <laughs> but so that, that, that's my favorite, that's my favorite inside joke that's in there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's of entertainment value to me. That's fun too. <laughs> Our next question actually comes in the form of an audio file. This is uh, chef Ram, who is a upcoming first year at Haverford actually. I'm excited to have her on, uh, you know, hopefully getting to know her and having her part of the program. So she sent this in to us and uh, we're going to go ahead and hear it now. Given your experience as the Civil Case Committee Chair, I was wondering what differences you'd personally noticed between the process of writing a civil case and the process of writing a criminal case. I mean, this could be anything ranging from timeline needed to write the case, number of writers needed, or even the specific steps undertaken to finish writing the case. It's, it's a little difficult to answer that question because I've never participated in the writing of a criminal case. I've proofread one or two of them you know, a week or two before they came out, but I've never participated. So I can't really speak to the process that goes into writing the criminal case. Obviously the one major difference we've had with the last two criminal cases is that you had a defendant not, not have an affidavit or deposition and just go completely off documents in the case. That's obviously a major difference. Um, there's things like, you know, the pleadings are different. You'd have an indictment and, and things like that. The criminal case committee has generally done jury instructions where we haven't. Um, there's been, I know the, the question was asked on perjuries about statutes, which I love that question, by the way. Um, criminal criminal uh, cases deal more with statutory law. Civil cases 
torts are, are more borne out by case law. Th those are the things that really, and obviously the, the big difference in burden of proof, a defense has a more easier has an easier time in a criminal case than they do in a civil case because the, the prosecution's job is harder than the plaintiff's job is, and it becomes almost unrealistic. In fact, it probably is unrealistic to write a criminal case where a prosecutor can actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt, because in order for that burden to be met, the defense would have to have virtually no argument. And that's never been the situation, obviously. So speaking of other cases, though, you obviously have been on civil case committees before, and, and you, um, again, I know I know, probably don't get into specifics about how much, but, but you were involved in the writing of Winter v. TBD, which was the last major civil case that I guess, non-NCT civil case that, that AMTA has had. And so I'm curious, as you're working, you know, I had to take that experience and now you're chairing this committee. Um, was there anything from the experience of writing and then editing and then, you know, making changes to over the course of the season, winter VTBD, that sort of influenced and helped your process as you were starting to dig into this case and eventually, you know, crafting what we're starting to see now? Oh, absolutely. And I actually, I, I've been on two prior renditions. It was first Park v. Duran and then Winter v. TBD. I actually loved Winter v. TBD. I thought it was a great case. I thought it was a great topic to introduce students to. Employment discrimination is a huge area of litigation. And I, I thought it was great that we got to give students an education on what's involved in a case like that and burn shifting and, and, and things like that. And I wish we could have gotten into the more controversial areas of discrimination, but I think the nature of mock trial kind of prevented that from happening. Worrying about, you know, what people could say in rounds, age was kind of the safest way to go. Um, the two big things that we had coming out of winter versus TBD. Number one, it was very clear to us, y'all wanted a dead person. So I felt <laughs> the need to deliver a dead person to you. And I thought that the fact pattern generally with Winter versus TBD was a little bit, I don't want to say more depressing, but a little bit drier. So we wanted to up, up the fun. So those, those were the two big things. We wanted a fun fact pattern, and, we, and we, we knew we had to have a dead person. So I, I would say those are the two biggest differences in writing Winter and writing uh, MTS versus Kozak. So with this case, something that, I think everyone's first reaction to, as I know it was mine, was that we have four swing witnesses. So in the broadest way possible, why are there four swing witnesses? And to be clear, we try to keep this podcast clean, but if I were asking you this question in a different setting, there would be some extra words in Drew's question. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we were trying to do a fact pattern that's fun, that makes sure that every round isn't the same. Winter, I think, had all constrained witnesses. Other civil cases in the past had more. Four is actually not, if you go back through the history of cases, it's not that unusual a number. And I think that this situation is far preferable than preparing two different defense cases, whether it's Park v. Duran or Bancroft and Covington. And so we were kind of balancing all those things that we wanted to give teams a way to switch it up and not have things be just completely different where everybody's workload is going insane. And the reality is, and this gets into, I think somebody mentioned uh, 
why the witness call is the way it is. If you're, you can limit certain things based on how you call your witnesses. You could limit your crosses. You can, you can make sure that you basically get the call you want on the direct side of things. Like it's not a completely hopeless situation. I know it's hard work. Mock trial in any situation where we make it just not completely low hanging fruit is going to be hard work. And we tried to do the right balance. And that's, that's what we came up with. And obviously I, I am largely kidding about my sentiments. I think, um, you swing witnesses, like you said, make things interesting. Obviously they certainly keep coaches and competitors up late at night working on this stuff, but we're going to be doing that no matter what the case committee does. So I do think that it, it's going to be interesting, but you just mentioned what was going to be my next question, which is, you know, this year, the, uh, call order, you know, it's, so it's prosecution, defense, defense, prosecution, defense, prosecution. I know you probably don't want to get into specifics, understandably, about why the call order, you know, is the way that it is in certain ways. But what's the process like of developing the case and then working the call order in terms of how that is used, how you start to figure out, okay, this case would make sense with this particular call order and and the thought process behind developing that? Well, I mean, one of the ways of combating defense bias, this this particular call order is really not that uncommon if you go back through past cases, especially cases with swing witnesses, because with this particular call order, the plaintiff can guarantee itself one swing witness and, and, and it can pick whatever swing witness it wants. And that, that's one way of combating defense bias. And on the other side of the coin, if the defense prepares three swing witnesses, it can guarantee two of them. So those are the types of considerations that went into that. And again, this particular call order, if my recollection is correct, is not that uncommon if you go back through the history of cases with swing witnesses. Mike, one thing that you actually alluded to earlier was the question that was asked by Quality Quaffles on perjuries, and that was why exactly there aren't any statutes in this case. If you look at some of the past cases that have been written, they often will include uh, some specific statutes and penal code um, of you know that it's referencing. And in this case, we just have the you know relevant Midlands case law. Um, in which case, there are a couple of specific case law that do talk about uh, negligence and and the standards for that. Um, but I'm curious to you what the reasoning behind that was. The answer to this question kind of gets at the heart of American law. Criminal statutes, it used to be the case in England that you had what are called common law crimes. And, that, and the source and basis of American law comes, it traces back to English common law, some of which was adopted by the colonies when we declared independence from England. And the English had what are called common law crimes and what common law means is that judges literally make the law without parliament or Congress writing statutes. The, one of the big differences between the United States and England is that common law crimes have been abolished in the United States. Any time there's a crime, there has to be a written statute, whether it's by Congress or whether it's by the states. So you can't have a situation where a judge thinks to itself it would be a good idea if murder was illegal or if assault was illegal. There has to be a written statute that everybody knows about in advance. That is why criminal cases have written statutes as opposed to just case law. 
With torts, it's very different. As you'll see when all of you get to law school, for the most part, torts in which if you lose a tort case, you just lose money. You don't have your freedom taken away. You're not branded a felon. You're not branded a criminal. Torts come from the common law. They are created by judges. The origins of American negligence law come from the English if you go far enough back. And so for the most part in the states in the country, you don't have statutes that lay out what negligence is. It has its origins in case law. Now, there are some exceptions to that, especially with more modern takes on tort law, which is why some cases have had statutes. But we were dealing with just regular old negligence. And that, combined with my laziness, is why there were no statutes. <laughs> But I thought that was a really good question, and that's why I reacted positively to it on perjuries. <laughs> well, I mean, aside from the the one L PTSD that you know you decided to give me with that uh, explanation, <laughs> I think every time uh, you said you know British common law, I just you know felt thought back to the the first several months of one L and the you know pit of despair that we all fall into. Uh, but go to law school, kids. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Along sort of similar lines as we're, you know, we're getting into more details with the case, last year we saw a situation where there was a possibility that the prosecution could force the defense to call a witness. And it was a situation where you had expert witnesses that were sort of related to one another. Uh, and I, I don't know if I'd say it's directly analogous this year, but you could make an argument that there's a similar situation this year. You all chose not to have a mandatory, um, you know, like a, a to allow one side to compel the other side to call a witness. Um, to the extent that you can get into it, what's the logic behind that decision? We don't like forcing teams to do things. We, 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 we like providing freedom and giving teams the freedom to pursue their cases as they want. I mean, if they, if they don't want to call an expert witness, they don't have to. If they do, they can. Well, and then the defense gets that opportunity, even if the plaintiff doesn't call their witness. We decided we didn't want teams trying to bootstrap um, Hawkins's report into the case if Hawkins isn't called. And that's why there were two uh, Miller-McCoy reports. But we wanted to give teams as much freedom as possible. And we thought that would make the case the most fun and interesting. You know, you just mentioned the the second report for for uh, Hawkins. I'm curious, or for McCoy, sorry, I think, right? I need to learn yes. these names a little better. Uh, so, what, so you were just kind of briefly mentioning, but I was actually really wondering why because in the past we've we've just had a lot of situations where that expert would be referring to another expert that may not be required to testify uh and it was just kind of expected that teams if they don't call it you probably shouldn't mention a lot of that stuff because it just doesn't matter well our big fear and I will get into because I think that this is something that would have happened had we just had one expert report is that you'd have plaintiff teams that would just use it as an opportunity to bootstrap their own expert reports into evidence through 703 and not have their expert be subject to cross-examination. And we, we decided we didn't want that to happen. I actually thought very similarly, so I'm glad to hear that that was the rationale. Uh, the next question that we had was that there was a new rule that was developed, or not really new, but uh, special instruction number six um, basically revamped what it means to be a non-affidavit witness. Um, so particularly for the party reps in this case that have depositions, um, you kind of reworded some of that with regards to how if you contradict something, 
that is now deemed an invention. So do you mind just going into a little more detail about why that language changed? Um, obviously, with the minutes coming out recently, we have uh, the committee form that's going to delve a little more into invention of facts. So if you don't want to get too far into that, I understand. But just what was the reasoning for that specificity in the special instructions? Anybody who wants my viewpoints on invention of facts can do an internet search for my public comments on perjuries before I became <laughs> a board member, which there are many. But um, this instruction had nothing to do with any changes in the rules. I think it just had to do with kind of codifying what should be common sense which is the whole point of depositions versus affidavit was to give the freedom to invent if there's, there's freedom to do so in the deposition and on topics not specifically covered. And that's fine, especially if the question is asked on cross-examination. But we wanted to make clear that if you commit perjury, either in your deposition or on your trial court testimony, that that is, in fact, a violation of the rules. If you're contradicting your deposition, that is a violation of the rules, and your deposition will be considered an affidavit under 8.17 and 8.9, I forget the exact subheading, like 6A1 or whatever it is, for that purpose. And I, I think that's basically codifying common sense, and I don't think a whole lot of people are out there wanting to contradict their depositions. So I'm confident that that specific special instruction change is not going to be a major, uh, major uh, death blow to anybody's case theory. The major, the last big one from me is that I think that a lot of people that read the case over the last couple of days read Ashley Thornhill's uh, affidavit and was getting excited. They were going, oh my goodness, this is just a juicy defense witness. I'm going to tear MTS apart over this. And they got to that last paragraph and they went, wow, why on earth would anyone say that they want revenge against Alex Grace? Like you just lost every shred of credibility. And if teams want to use this against us, like this is not something obvious. I think every team has noticed that this is a really major cross point on this witness. And in my opinion, personally, I think it's pretty uncallable at the moment. I'm just wondering, you know, why? Why would you do that? I offer no opinion on what witnesses should or shouldn't be called. The reason why lines like that are in there, especially for defense witnesses, again, we're combating pro-defense bias with a defense-constrained witness. And that line is not – that type of line is not that uncommon. If you go back through history and look at affidavits when bias points are put in, and I know it's not realistic for – not necessarily realistic for somebody to be that blunt about things. But if we're not that blunt about things, then the intended bias point becomes very easily avoidable on cross-examination. And we want – especially with defense witnesses, we want to lock people in as much as possible. And my suspicion is the teams will still call that witness and <laughs> y'all are sneaky. And y'all are smarter than me. And I have no doubt that those two – and smarter than the rest of the members of the committee, though they're smarter than me. But I have no doubt that, that that witness will be a commonly called witness and will flourish regardless. Well, one thing that you mentioned that was what struck me about it is the unrealisticness of it. And the thing for me – and I understand that you know when writing a case, there are a lot of different variables that have to be considered – but when you write a witness that to me sounds so unrealistic as to like saying bluntly, like, I want revenge, 
the issue with that is that you're going to run into judges who, you know, if they haven't read it, you know, if it comes up on cross, they're going to be like, why on earth did this witness just give in on this point? Like they just lost all of their credibility. But in reality, everyone else in the courtroom knows, well, they have no choice. That's what their affidavit says. And I guess it's just from a realistic standpoint, it just sounds so unusual that I feel like it could be really penalizing to teams. But hey, more power to them if they can pull it off. I suspect teams will figure out plenty of ways to flourish with this witness. <laughs> fair. I, I think that's probably a fair assessment. So as we sort of move forward, right? So we, we've gotten into some very surface level specifics of this case, but um, obviously you all did something interesting this year and in that you've kind of identified some more specific, I mean, we, Amt has always had, right? Like the, about a month after the case comes out, there's some updates and then there's some post fall updates and then there's post regionals updates. You all obviously codified that, which I think is great. Um, so what's the process like moving forward now? So I assume you've already gotten a lot of feedback from the Amta community at large. I know I already talked to um, one coach, I won't name the individual, one coach who sent a fairly lengthy response on one particular issue. Um, and I'm sure you've gotten tons of feedback and, and things like that. So what's the process like for the case committee now, as you all are starting to get information from the Amta community at large, and starting to process and look towards that September date where you release an updated case packet? That's a great question. Um, let's get to the most basic part of that. Anybody who sees an error in the case, has a concern about any part of the case, or just has a question about something, you should send an email to amta.civilcase at collegemocktrial.org. That email address is on perjuries. I mentioned it. It's on the website. You send an email to that address. I get it. I send it to the committee. We discuss it. We discuss what changes need to be made, and I am very happy that we have received some extremely thoughtful emails with typos, questions, concerns, and all of that. I promise you every email that gets sent to that address is read by the entire committee and debated by, discussed by the committee, and we will make whatever changes we feel are appropriate. Um, I guess on September 16th, the, the release is going to be. I can't anticipate right now what those changes will be precisely. We still have to discuss much of the emails we've received already. I assume we'll receive plenty more between now and then, and uh, and we'll and we'll see what changes are uh, are, are appropriate. Uh, then, once we have our first bevy of invites um, by December, we'll get some information, and I'm sure that'll play into what the case changes are. Usually, it's the weekend of the Yale, the Sunday night of. Yale is when traditionally that the December changes have been released. I don't know for sure if that's going to be the situation this year, but that's certainly what I'd have in mind. And then the Sunday night after uh, after the last regional is generally uh, generally when the pre-orc case changes get released. Well, I think we're all looking forward to uh, getting our hands on the you know the changes the one the case packet that we're going to use for those invitationals, um, so that everybody can you know secretly print their case at work and, and start to, uh, you know, dig into the, the case that's going to be used at invitationals. Uh, so Mike, we can't thank you enough for coming on. I mean, first of all, from the entire AMTA community, we can't thank you enough for chairing the committee that produced this case that we're going to get to use all year. I know it's, it's largely a thankless task, but, um, it's obviously a tremendous service to our community as a whole. And so 
we all really appreciate that. And I think everyone is extremely excited to get to start competing with this case. And then obviously thank you, you know, just days after this case came out for coming on and, you know, talking with us about it. Hopefully as the season goes on, we can, you know, do this again. And maybe once the fall case changes come out or the winter case changes come out, we can uh, dig into those a little bit to the extent that you're able and just keep checking in on things over the, the course of the season. But on behalf of Drew and I, thanks so much for coming on and chatting with us. Thanks for having me. It was great. And it was the, the questions that everybody posed were great. I post on perjuries all the time, uh, be responsive to emails. So try to be as uh, available as possible. And I'm, I'd love to come on again. I mean, there's one thing I love talking about. It's mock trial. So there you go. Well, clearly, Drew and I, you know, we can't stand talking about mock trial, but we force <laughs> ourselves to do it for the benefit of others. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. All right. Bye-bye, guys.